You're listening to a podcast from Heart. My name's Andrew Grace from Cambridge in England, and I've got the pleasure this morning of welcoming Professor Bill Stevenson, a distinguished electrophysiologist um, from the Brigham and Women's Hospital in, and Harvard Medical School in Boston. And he's been speaking this morning at the British Cardiovascular Society meeting in Manchester on radiofrequency ablation in the context of ventricular fibrillation storms, most specifically in the context of Brugada syndrome. Bill, welcome to... Um, this podcast. Thank you um, very much. In terms of the management and the ablation of um, ventricular arrhythmia substrates, I think we move in possibly from a one point, which was the mapping of triggers, to the mapping of substrate in non-ischemic disease. And I'd just like to give some comments from you on that in the context of the Bugada phenotype. Yes, it's very interesting that uh, some years ago, of course, Michelle Hasegar and his group showed us that you could ablate triggers to control episodes of polymorphic VT and VF. And the Brigada syndrome, of course, the arrhythmia is polymorphic VT and VF, but it's very infrequent that one has the opportunity to catch the trigger, to actually see the PVC that's initiating those episodes, because the episodes generally are infrequent. And even when a patient has uh, more frequent episodes, they usually aren't having a lot of ectopy. So uh, recently, uh, Kunlawi Nadmani, uh, who has uh, been studying the Brigada syndrome in a group in uh, Thailand, identified nine patients who had recurrent episodes of polymorphic VT and who agreed to undergo endocardial and epicardial ablation. And uh, he made some very interesting observations that in the epicardium of the right ventricular outflow tract, there were areas of fractionated electrograms and delayed electrical activity looked very much like what one sees in areas of slow conduction in regions of scar. On the endocardium adjacent to that, the signals were normal. He then went ahead and uh, ablated through the areas of abnormal electrograms, electrograms in the epicardium, and that abolished episodes of uh, recurrent polymorphic VT for uh, almost all but, all but essentially one of the patients. And interestingly, it also normalized the electrocardiogram, and it uh, abolished inducible VF, which most of these patients had in the majority of them as well. In terms of the phenotype they're seen in Southeast Asia, and it's well described, I think, in the northeastern part of Thailand, uh, it occurs, it seems, very aggressively in younger male, pop- male population. Do you think it's possible, and I think this was something that came up in the session, that this is a somewhat different phenotype than we might see in you know, the UK and in, in the United States? Yes, I, I absolutely agree with you there. This is a very select group of patients uh, electrical storm in Brugada syndrome is relatively infrequent. Uh, l- the literature would suggest perhaps 2 or 3% of patients with the uh, true Brugada syndrome will have uh, electrical storm. So this is clearly a very select, uh, select group, and it's possible that if we uh, did epicardial mapping in a broader group of Brugada patients who were less severely affected, maybe we wouldn't find this type of substrate. The particular caution you brought up in your talk, which I think a very important take-home message, was that entering the epicardium, at least using current tools, is something that we should approach cautiously. I'd just like further comments on that, I I guess not just in the Rugada context, but across the broader sweep of where you think we are now with epicardial mapping and ablation and where we're heading and the tools that might emerge over the next few years. 
Well, epicardial uh, mapping and ablation percutaneously performed is a very important tool for addressing many ventricular tachycardias, particularly those in non-ischemic cardiomyopathies and in arrhythmogenic uh, right ventricular cardiomyopathy. It's really crucial in those uh, disorders. Um, but despite the fact that we've been doing this now for some time, the tools that we have to access the epicardium are about the same. And the incidence of significant pericardial bleeding uh, remains on the order of about 5% when one looks at it across multiple centers. And there was a nice publication from Frederick Sacher uh, last year uh, that reported that. And, and we see that uh, in our center as well. The, the major complication risk for VT ablation endocardially is really quite low. Uh, however, for epicardial access... Uh, in our first 100 cases, we had no patients that needed to go to the operating room for bleeding. In our second 100 cases, we had three, and that's quite unusual for a VT uh, population. So I think it, is a, it adds some risk to the procedure, and it shouldn't be undertaken lightly, and I, I don't feel that it should be done in centers who do not have availability of surgical backup. Do you think there's any technologies that will emerge in the near future that might make it um, more readily approachable from our point of view? Well, I hope so. There has been more interest from industry to try and develop safer means of achieving access to the pericardial space. I'm not aware of anything that is commercially available or in trials yet. And in terms of pre-procedural um, assay um, imaging tests um, before epicardial ablation, what's the current practice at the Brigham? So um, we don't typically do any uh, imaging necessarily. If the patient doesn't have a defibrillator and we're interested in localizing areas of scar, we will do MR imaging. We have been using uh, a bit more intracardiac ultrasound imaging, particularly during the uh, epicardial procedures. You can reconstruct the chamber anatomy, which facilitates then uh, plotting the electroanatomic mapping data on that chamber. And you can watch the pericardial space for any accumulation of, uh, of bleeding. And I think that may allow you to recognize a problem earlier before it becomes a big problem. One of the things you talked about at the beginning was the triggered beats coming from the Hispakinji system. And one of the cases mentioned during the course of the talk related to from the audience was a, a patient who'd had syncope with triggered beats uh, with non-sustained runs. And we wondered whether maybe ICD protection in that individual might be required or would um, ablation of itself remove when the um, Pekinji beats be sufficient. I'd be interested in your comments on that. Yeah, there certainly are some patients who have... Um, PVCs, frequent PVCs, little runs of non-sustained VT um, that get your attention where you think, oh, this is not the usual severity of ectopy that one sees in an ambulatory healthy person. So the, tip, the typical thing is someone with very closely coupled PVCs interrupting the peak of the T wave, very rapid non-sustained VT. Some of those people will have uh, serious ventricular arrhythmias, cardiac arrest due to ventricular fibrillation. Fortunately, it's rare, and, and unfortunately, we don't know very well how to select these people, how to identify them. We know that they're out there and that they may present as a so-called idiopathic VF. And when we have the opportunity to identify one before they've had that first VF episode or syncope, we don't know how to clearly recognize them. 
So there are some rough guidelines, and it really does relate to the rate of the, of the non-sustained VT. If it's very rapid, faster than 220 beats per minute, short-coupled PVCs, uh, that would make me worried. My practice in that situation is to have a discussion with the patient say, I don't know what your risk is, but these are features that have me worried. There are some people that have died who have these sorts of uh, features, and here are our therapeutic options. It could be that a defibrillator for uh, a young active person with that uh, constellation of features may be reasonable. And, of course, it's it's quite important to evaluate them for other causes of uh, uh, arrhythmogenic heart disease. One of the major focuses of the session this morning uh, was the idea of risk stratification in the Brugada syndrome. It's obviously a very challenging area, and you pointed out your group and the risks that can emerge with ICD therapy in that group. Where do you think we're heading in, in that arena, that is, in risk stratifying those with the Brugada ECG phenotype? Yes, so that is a really challenging problem, and, and as you pointed out, we're putting in defibrillators in those who we perceive at risk but there's a greater chance that that patient will have problems with their defibrillator that have a negative impact on their quality of life than it is that the defibrillator will save their life from an arrhythmia. But every now and then, a defibrillator will save their mm-hmm. save a life. So this is a very challenging area. Our, our practice is certainly defibrillators for anyone that's had any symptoms. Beyond that, somebody who has a spontaneous type 1 uh, ECG It's very hard at this point to make, I think, firm recommendations for a defibrillator using either programmed stimulation uh, or electrocardiographic markers. But I think that we really need organized, large, multicenter studies, the registries that have been so important in advancing our knowledge, to, uh, to try and address that. And I think we likely need better genetic definition of the disease types. Um, I, I wonder if it's not that we're looking at Brugada syndrome, but in fact it's 20 different diseases with a similar phenotype. Just my final question, I think, but of great interest to the community, is the threshold in terms of when one might consider a ventricular tachycardia ablation in the ICD population. I'm thinking back to Vivek Reddy's paper and how, for example, that and other data is impacted upon the practice at Brigham. Yes. So moving to monomorphic ventricular tachycardias, we appreciate that once a patient has a monomorphic VT in structural heart disease, sustained monomorphic VT, their defibrillator terminates their VT, the likelihood that that's going to happen, again, is really quite high on the order of 40 to 60 percent over the next two years. And um, there's increasing concern that episodes of VT, and certainly defibrillator shocks that terminate episodes, have been linked to uh, increased hospitalizations for heart failure and increased mortality. So once somebody has a spontaneous episode of uh, VT, we look very carefully to see, is this a sign of impending uh, cardiac deterioration, hemodynamic deterioration, worsening heart failure? And should we do something to be more aggressive to prevent the next episode of, uh, of VT? It's easy to give them an antiarrhythmic drug, so very often that's what happens in the, in the clinic. But I think that we should be a bit more aggressive about ablation for those folks because uh, the risks of catheter ablation now, uh, endocardial catheter ablation, are really quite low. Uh, in fact, they're generally lower than the risks of ablation for atrial fibrillation in many centers. Um, and the efficacy is quite reasonable on the order of about 70%. 
And one can go into the procedure with the, with the idea that if you find uh, endocardial VT substrate that's easily ablatable, you'll fix that, and those patients will generally do well. If it's one of the 20 or 30 percent of patients where it's not a straightforward ablation, there's indication that the substrate, the reentry circuits may be intramural, epicardial, well, then one just accepts that and says, okay, for this patient, antiarrhythmic drug therapy may be the better next step. Fabulous. Bill, that's very clear guidance. I think it'd be very welcome by our community. I'd like to thank you, I think, on the, behalf of the British Cardiovascular Society for your visit in Manchester, spent time with us. We obviously wish you a very safe journey home. Thank you. Thank you very much. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.